everyone, it's Emma here. I'm pleased to say that we're squeezing in another special episode of season four of Barely Getting By just before the end of the year. This episode is a recording of a live webinar hosted by RMIT University on Thursday, the 1st of December, with special guests Professor Ben Cashaw and Professor Navroz K. Dubash. I hope you enjoy it. My name is Dr. Emma Shortis, and on behalf of the European Union Centre of Excellence at RMIT University here in Melbourne in Australia and the Institute for Environment and Sustainability at the National University of Singapore, it's my absolute pleasure to, to welcome you to our event this evening or perhaps this afternoon, depending on where you're joining us from. Um, this seminar forms part of a series that is hosted by the Jean Monnet Network on Social and Scientific Innovation to Achieve the Sustainable Development Goals, which is supported by the Erasmus Plus Jean Monnet Activities Program of the European Union. I um, would like to begin uh, this evening's seminar by acknowledging the people of the Woiwurrung and Boon language groups, the Eastern Kulin nations, on whose unceded lands um, at least some of us are meeting today. I would also like to acknowledge the Eastern Ma and Gunjitmara peoples on whose unceded lands I live and work. I acknowledge ancestors and elders, past and present, and that sovereignty was never ceded. We acknowledge to the traditional owners of the lands, waters and skies, uh, wherever it is that you may be joining us from tonight. And I think in the context of, of this seminar, which of course is, is focused in particular on COP27 and international climate politics, this acknowledgement is, is particularly important. First Nations people are shamefully underrepresented in international climate negotiations. Um, in the Australian context, for example, First Nations representatives, in fact, often have to fund their own attendance at meetings like COP26 or 27, to which the Australian government also sends mining magnates with histories of obscene treatment of Indigenous peoples and their countries. And in fact, as COP27 um, was unfolding here in Australia, we were reminded of the wanton destruction of sacred Indigenous cultural sites at Yukon Gorge in Western Australia by the fossil giant Rio Tinto. So as we analyse the, the outcomes and, and otherwise, I suppose, of COP27, I think these realities have to be front and centre. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and even if you aren't in Australia um, this evening, I encourage you to read and support um, something called the Uluru Statement from the Heart and consider what it would mean for your own work, um, for Australia's role in the world and for international climate politics more broadly. So with that, um, it's my absolute pleasure to introduce our two panellists for this evening. Navroz K. Dubash is a professor at the Centre for Policy Research in India, where he conducts research and writes on climate change, energy, air pollution, water policy and the politics of regulation in the developing world. He has been actively engaged in the climate debate as a scholar, a policy advisor and an activist for a quarter of a century. He was instrumental in establishing the Global Climate Action Network in 1990 and has since written widely about climate politics, policy and governance. He is currently a coordinating lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, the Sixth Assessment, and advises the UN Environment Program Emissions Gap Report Steering Committee. He's been an, a member of the Scientific Advisory Group of the UN Climate Action Summit. So he's very busy and we're so grateful that he um, has the time to join us this evening. 
Our second panellist, uh, Ben Cashaw, is the Lee Cashing Professor in Public Management and Director of the Institute for Environment and Sustainability in the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore. Ben specialises in global and multi-level environmental governance, comparative public policy and administration, and transnational business regulation and corporate social responsibility. Ben joined the National University of Singapore after spending 18 years at Yale University as a Professor of Environmental Governance and Political Science, where he also directed the Governance, Environments and Markets Initiative and from 2014 to 19 directed the Yale International Fox Fellows Exchange Program, where I was lucky enough um, to meet him. So before I, I hand over to our speakers, just some, some minor housekeeping things. Please keep yourselves on mute while our speakers are, are talking. Um, you may also have noticed that this event is being recorded. It will later be released as an episode of um, what is now season four of RMIT's podcast called Barely Getting By. There will be an opportunity for questions at the end, um, if you like, and especially if you don't want to be recorded, you're also welcome to pop your questions into the chat function and I can share them with our speakers. And in terms of format, our speakers will each speak first for around about 10 minutes, after which I will pepper them with follow-up questions um, before I open it up to the floor. So that, I, th I think you've heard more than enough from me, and it's my pleasure now to hand over to Professor Navroz Jubash. Thank you. Uh, thank you so very much, uh, Emma. It's really wonderful to uh, to uh, to join this. And my thanks to RMIT University and to the Lee Kuan Yew School. Uh, I'm delighted to share uh, a panel with uh, with Ben uh, Kashor as well. And I really look forward to to hearing what he has to say. We haven't had a chance to debrief with each other as yet on on COP27. Um, so uh, COP27 at Sharm El Sheikh in uh, in Egypt. Um, as I'm sure everybody knows, is part of this sort of annual jamboree, uh, really. Uh, and these climate cops really have sort of dual functions. Uh, at one level, the technical bodies, there is a very complex global regime being built painstakingly on a consensus basis by the uh, countries that have signed up to the climate uh, regime. And at the same time, uh, there is a enormous uh, profusion of events happening on the periphery. And in some ways it's become the core now of the event. Many people don't even show up at the negotiations. Uh, what we're gonna talk about today, or at least I'm gonna talk about today is a little bit more on sort of the formal process, which has both kind of a technical dimension uh, uh, and a political dimension. Of course, the technical dimension is also deeply political, but in a sense, it's it, the, the, the political elements or the political valence of that is buried. Uh, so only a few things ever kind of surface into the into the uh, into the media uh, glare, if you like, in terms of political messages uh, from these cops. So I'm going to focus really on some of those larger political messages, but also want to flag that a lot of the seemingly technical decisions have enormous significance, and I will maybe flag a couple of those uh, as well. So just three or four points in the in the uh, uh, eight or nine minutes that I have. Um, the headline coming out of this COP was really the creation of a fund uh, after much, much uh, uh, mobilization by developing countries, by advocates, by vulnerable nations to fund what is called loss and damages or losses and damages. And that basically says that in addition to mitigation or reducing emissions, and adaptation, which is managing those uh, the effects of those emissions better, there are is going to be a residual set of impacts. 
And those should not be borne by those who are most impacted. They should, in fact, be borne. The costs of those should be borne by somebody else. And this is the idea of loss and damage. Uh, it has been stymied in the negotiations, largely because many countries who are large emitters have feared that this becomes a channel for compensation and or liability. Right. Uh, so it was actually uh, even through week one of the event, John Kerry at a New York Times side event said, it's not going to happen. Let's not fool ourselves. There is going, not going to be a loss and damage fund. And a week later, there was. So it's actually quite interesting uh, uh, politics. It's a sense in which the developing countries, including the large developing countries, uh, came together very firmly on this agenda. There wasn't really a schism uh, between them. And in a sense, it's an interesting sort of norm-changing event. The fact that the vulnerable are not left, in a sense, to hang out uh, uh, to dry by themselves, but there is a sort of broader responsibility, I think, is, a, is, a, is an important moment. Not to overstate this, because a lot of work remains to be done. Who pays into the fund? Is it going to be just a few countries? Is it going to be only developed countries? Is it going to be large developing countries? How does one decide who gets the money? What constitutes a vulnerable country? Uh, the language talked about particularly and most vulnerable countries. All of this remains to be fought, fought out. But it is a significant moment. It opens up a whole new kind of channel of negotiation, uh, a third uh, leg, if you like, after mitigation and adaptation uh, or rather fourth one, with the third one being what is called means of implementation, which includes things like uh, finance and technology uh, uh, and so on. So um, there will be time to bemoan the kind of deadlocks later, but I think it's worth pausing to say this was a, a significant moment. Um, the second thing that gets talked about a lot with regard to COP, uh, this COP in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, is was there or was there not adequate progress on the, what many people still see as the core agenda, which is mitigation. Um, and a lot of, and here was, there's an interesting kind of north-south divide. And I will sort of try and bring a perspective from the Indian uh, media and the Indian kind of negotiating uh, view, uh, because I've had conversations with some of those folks. I have no formal affiliation with them. Um, and, and from the European point of view, allied with some small vulnerable states, we need to try and keep 1.5 degrees alive, the threshold beyond which climate harms uh, are considered to be less than fully manageable, right? And in the past, we struck about two degrees, and now it's 1.5 degrees. How does one try and keep 1.5 alive? Well, one tries to put in hooks and levers for countries to increase their contributions. Uh, and in the Paris Agreement, there's this phrase, nationally determined contributions, which is what all countries are supposed to bring to the table. How often do those countries ramp up those contributions? What is done with those contributions? How do we judge their significance? The mitigation agenda is about trying to make that process more legible, more predictable, and a little bit stronger. Right? So that's from the European point of view and the small island states, that's what they wanted. Many developing countries turned around and said, now hang on a minute, we've already put on the table NDCs. The deal is that NDCs come with support in the form of finance that is explicitly part of the Paris uh, Agreement. And the developed countries have not yet forked out the $100 billion a year that they were supposed to mobilize by a couple of years ago. They're now two years late, and it's on the order of sort of 80 or 90 uh, billion that has been that has actually been, uh, been mobilized. So you're asking us, in a sense, 
to agree to ramp these pledges up without actually being assured of the sources of support. But more to the point, the underpinnings, the north-south sort of fissure in the in the negotiations revolves around a very important phrase, which is which is a little lengthy, so forgive me, but it's this phrase, common but differentiated responsibility and respective capabilities. And it basically the key word there is differentiated responsibilities, which is what the South argues for. And the North will say, well, but they're also common responsibilities. And how you actually kind of work around those two contradictory phrases has been, in some ways, the common thread uh, through 30 years of, of, of negotiations. So the question is, if you're going to ramp up your pledges, do we have clarity on whose responsibility it is to do how much? And absent that responsibility, the risk is that rich countries will say, well, this is what we can handle at home. You guys go off and do the rest. Now, at the COP, uh, uh, there were some studies released that basically said, if you want to keep to 1.5 degrees, the only way to do that is for developed countries to decrease their emissions much faster than they're doing, or for developing countries to actually shrink their energy use, shrink the energy use from what is already a very low level of energy, given all the enormous challenges of development, developing countries are obviously not keen on this. So this is the nature of this deadlock, right? So, so, and there was an interesting linkage that the European Union tried to make back to the loss and damage agenda, which said, fine, we don't really love loss and damage, but we'll do it if you guys agree to take 1.5 seriously. And that linkage eventually sort of foundered uh, uh, and was and was broken. So the key point is this, right? So one, so 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 both sides, are in a sense, jostling for the moral high ground. One is saying we are serious about 1.5 and climate impacts, and the other side is saying you're trying to push the burden of the response off onto us, even though you guys historically have contributed to most of the emissions that are up in the atmosphere. My worry is that this tension shows no real sign of abating, and it will lead to sort of challenges in terms of this 1.5 uh, kind of language uh, uh, and agenda. And the irony in some ways is that if we were do, trying to have a slower transition, developing countries might be able to leapfrog to renewable energy because they would have time to do that, and they would be able to mobilize the capital potentially. With 1.5, it's actually squeezing energy demand, which is where the, the which is really the, the the sticking point. So so there may be a real trade-off here between how ambitious we can hope to be and uh, what the interests of uh, actually very poor people in developing countries who are also looking to develop, uh, uh, you know, how those are worked out. Now, related to this is a third kind of theme that came up. One of the things that was a, a, a headline coming out of the Glasgow COP. Uh, just a year ago, was that there was explicit insertion on, of language on a phase out of coal, which at the last minute was changed to a phase down of coal at India's insistence, actually uh, India's insistence, but backed by both China and the US, which had that language in their, in their document. Now, obviously, coal is a big culprit. You have a lot of discussions around coal uh, uh, in Australia. Sometimes you have discussions about coal in Australia that pertain to India, uh, which I'm also very aware of. Uh, so this is a, a shared interest, uh, uh, clearly. Now, what was interesting at Sharma Sheikh is India put on the table the language of changing coal phase down to fossil fuel phase down, right? 
And now, obviously, it's in India's interest because we have coal, but we don't have some of the other fuels. Why should you single out coal? But it's also, from a global mitigation point of view, it makes a lot of sense. Even though coal is dirtiest, ultimately, you have to get rid of all fossil fuels. And you may not actually want to lock in even gas, one of the, clean, the cleanest fossil fuel. Uh, and the U.S., for example, is, a ma- is, is investing heavily in gas uh, uh, even today. In response to the Ukraine crisis, Europe has kind of started reopening coal-fired power plants and is desperately seeking gas from all around the world. So some of that kind of uh, 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 was called out as hypocrisy. I mean, just to just to, to use the, the 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 term, the blunt term that was that was used. So in that context, it was interesting. A lot of countries lined up behind India, saying, "Yeah, good idea, fossil fuel phase down," including countries like the U.S. and Norway, that perhaps it's not directly in their interests because they're actually investing quite heavily in gas. But it was blocked by some of the uh, states that are very locked into uh, into oil, the petrostates. Um, and in a sense, it's not really clear what the politics and the optics of this was. There were, were countries putting this forward or lining up behind it, knowing that somebody else would be a blocking coalition so they could get credit for it without having to actually swallow the pill. All of that is sort of, you know, will come out through a lot of forensic discussion in the in the coming uh, coming months. But what eventually happened is fossil fuel phase down didn't make it. It stayed as coal. But at the very last minute, the paragraph on energy shifted from saying promote renewable energy to saying promote low emissions and renewable energy. So low emissions is obviously a gloss for gas and potentially also for nuclear. Uh, So we've ended up with language that actually opens the door a bit wider uh, uh, to to fossil fuels. I suspect I'm almost out of time. Uh, Emma, can I take one more minute to make two more quick points? Of course. course. Okay, great. So just two more quick points. Um, so, so, So I've talked about loss and damage. I've talked about mitigation, this curious thing about fossil fuels. And I've hinted at the importance of finance. So the finance, so so I talked about the, the political as well as the technical. Now, there are a number of discussion, number of uh, negotiations that happen in a sense behind the scenes, not in the public glare, where decisions are not expected to be taken at this COP, but they're meant to be advanced at this COP with actual decisions taken at the next COP. And one of these is this so-called, uh, and this this world is full of acronyms, the NCQG, the NA, the um, the uh, uh, the I'm forgetting the acronym myself. The National Collective Quantitative Goal. In other words, how much money do we need that goes beyond the hundred billion dollars uh, that was promised uh, uh, at Paris? So the so there were a lot of background conversations around finance, and these were really deadlocked. Um, the kinds of issues that bubbled up. Uh, was there was a very interesting initiative by the Prime Minister of Barbados called the Bridgetown Initiative, which said, look, we don't think a whole lot of money is coming from the uh, uh, the public coffers of the rich world. We can read the writing on the wall. How about mobilizing the multilateral development banks to rethink their agenda and remake their purpose? So that Bridgetown agenda uh, around the multilateral development banks, the World Bank, Asian Development Bank, and so on, got a lot of uh, attention. Um, the question of whether or not um, uh, one thinks of finance in terms of needs or whether one thinks of finance in terms of entitlements. In other words, those who have occupied the carbon space now have to pay their share. 
was sort of a sub theme uh, that 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 uh, that was sort of uh, filtering uh, um, uh, below the surface. Um, and finally, a third aspect of the finance agenda, which didn't get put on the table, very controversial aspect, was should we be thinking about mainstreaming climate into broader uh, categories of finance? And that is something that we will expect to see coming forward uh, at the next, I'm guessing, at the next COP, because a lot of developed countries really were keen on it, and it got stymied at, at, at this COP. Developing countries are basically saying it's got to be predictable money. It's got to be ideally public money. We don't want all these uh, soft loans. It has to be sort of grant money. And a sub-theme here is that my, my own perspective on this is what's happening is instead of systemic changes towards more finance, you're having basically bespoke deals being done. So the developed countries have done a deal with South Africa for a just energy transition partnership. They recently announced one during COP on for Indonesia. And one for India is supposedly uh, in the pipeline, uh, given that India is now sort of, uh, in fact, just today, taken over as presidency of the G20. Um, so these bespoke deals might be actually how finance uh, moves. And the last 30 seconds, I, I, just to add, to put on everybody's agenda, one of the sleeper issues is carbon markets. So very contentious issue uh, is the rules for carbon markets. And this go went on in the background, and there were lots of sort of concerns that these rules were going to be quite non-transparent. They're going to allow so-called offsets uh, where countries can claim credits against what they would otherwise have done. Um, uh, so these hypothetical counterfactuals and how do you sort of manage that and so on and so forth. So that's an issue uh, uh, to watch for. So I hope this hasn't got into too much detail uh, uh, for folks, but, but essentially, one spark of, of light uh, uh, in the loss and damage story and a lot of grinding of wheels and a fair amount of deadlock on a lot of the other agenda items. Thank you. Thank you, Navroza. If, if anything, I'm looking forward to hearing more detail. Um, I will hand over now um, straight away to Ben and then we'll, we'll dive into some, some follow-up questions. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Emma and Navroza. Great to be part of this uh, conversation. I'm just going to highlight a few themes my perspective and a little background. Um, I attend uh, a climate COP probably every four or five years from um, the Bali one in 2007 to the Paris Accord. And I've been to the one in Lima in Poland and of course Charm. I don't go every year and I go to many different um, conferences as a student of transnational environmental governance. Uh, who's focused on um, both the biodiversity and climate questions. So my perspective is going to be to give you some overall sort of sense of the positives and negatives from um, uh, my experience at, at, at this COP. Um, and I want to start by saying, for me, there isn't one COP or two or three. There's like a thousand COPs all happening simultaneously. Some are, as Navrat said, in the negotiations but many are at these pavilions and as well as these um, side events where intellectuals and practitioners come together to advance their questions um, and their concerns, be they development concerns, be they just transitions concerns, be they, be they concerns around financial opportunities, and be they concerns around the thing that actually was the original motivator um, for these um, uh, international deliberations of the climate crisis itself. And you know, I would 
I think that's really important because sometimes we get lost in other problems uh, that, that, that are brought onto this agenda and we sometimes lose sight of the fact that we are hurtling towards uh, catastrophe um, and how we think about this climate COP and in general climate deliberations as part of a broader suite of policy tools across the world is really important for us to ponder. So for me, it is like a big giant wedding where all you can do is talk to somebody for a few moments when you really want a few hours with them and deciding who to talk to becomes part of that um, uh, sort of negotiation in your own mind as you go and you seek pavilions from by energy companies, by those promoting nuclear, those promoting indigenous rights to those promoting then loss and damage, and then of course those thinking about climate solutions. So what did I find unique about this COP? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm a Canadian uh, who spent many years in the United States and now I'm three years in Singapore. And on the positive side, I've never seen so much interest in the part of governments from Singapore to Canada and even, of course, the U.S. now with, with this Inflation Reduction Act in the nitty gritty of designing for decarbonizing. Um, the, the Singapore government had its first ever pavilion, um, which had two weeks of incredible workshops every day from that brought together student activists or climate scholars to those working on the science of forests and carbon to the technical folks working on energy and uh, uh, just transitions all together in one place to generate conversations about cooperative and collaborative engagement on these issues. The Singapore government now has actually a climate hub a website they've initiated to think about how to intervene and gener generate really meaningful ideas for decarbonizing. So this is happening uh, as part of a broader set of efforts. In Canada, I met a former student at Yale, now advising the um, uh, Environment Ministry in Canada uh, on their efforts. And they're all keen on how do we think about then giving the environment world, how do we bring it into the government which has a multitude of challenges it has to face. How do we bring climate and environment into the government? Uh, I happen to meet, because of these two efforts, the Singapore and Canadian environment ministers at the conference who are bringing the environment into these broader conversations. So at that level, I've never seen so much attention and acceleration of interest, and it's a very exciting time to be involved in these efforts. But as you all know, there's been excitement before. There's been excitement in many COPs, and the world is not um, reducing its hurtling um, uh, towards the 1.5 uh, degree objective. So how do we reconcile on the one hand this excitement, um, which is genuine and leading to all kinds of innovations, and then still this hurtling uh, towards the 1.5? Many of now would say we, we've actually passed. There was an economist argument saying we've now passed 1.5, it's time to think about two. So we have these tensions that to me need to be opened up. Um, so what I was struck by in this conference was that it is interesting that loss and damage became the main outcome because loss and damage, as Navarro's pointed out, is even one step removed from adaptation. It's basically saying we've, we've, we've even failed in adaptation, let's compensate. So the least impactful question got the most attention, but where's the likewise the attention for um, of course, mitigation and then meaningful adaptation. And I would say I found in the, um, again, lots of attention, but I did find a lot of countries jockeying for um, ways to cast narratives that pushed um, the agenda in their favor. 
You know, so the U.S. focuses in China a lot, despite as Nardo's pointing out that the Annex One countries, the northern countries, are still responsible for the vast majority of emissions in the atmosphere, which we know stay there for 300 years. So that's still that responsibility is there, but we see often actually uh, shifting the responsibilities. And so I'm concerned, for example, with two initiatives taking place that might or might not lead to positive outcomes. One is the um, uh, effort to actually link into trade flows, uh, uh, taxes that impose uh, tariffs on countries that haven't done enough on climate. But these often are coming from countries in the north um, and advocating therefore tariffs on countries that historically have had fewer emissions than the north. So there's some of, of an irony there. And even for example, the European Union now is um, expanding its last 20 years of forest related climate efforts to a uh, no deforestation regulation. Um, but again, the concern is you might, unless you design it well, you may actually be undermining the South um, in its development efforts and not achieving and, and pushing that off in the name of your own climate responsibilities. So kind of reversing responsibilities to the South versus taking responsibility for your own actions. And in that regard, another event that was taking place at the time was an effort on the part of some Canadian activists to initiate a uh, a non-proliferation treaty on oil extraction. The idea is to actually model this, this treaty effort after the one on nuclear non-proliferation to now include oil. And that sounds great, and I'm not dissing it at all because we need to think about innovative ideas, but why are we getting this idea now, 30 years later after the, after the or 30 years, 29 years after the first COP? Um, uh, uh, and um, you know, to me, I wonder again whether this isn't an easy one because those have already done the oil extraction, therefore don't mind being part of this non-proliferation treaty. They've already done it. And so, who are the countries that would want to be part of this? Probably those in the South that haven't yet developed in that way. So, is this actually more of a protectionist uh, effort than it is actually a decarbonization effort? I'm concerned about. But of course. Getting on to the latest ideas for what to do that are tractable, cognitively easy, this one works really well. But is it going to achieve the results we want, or is it going to reinforce these power dynamics is a question that I'm very uh, concerned about. I think both the non-proliferation treaty and even the EU's efforts could go in positive directions if designed well and not actually undermine the South. But the devil's in the details, and I'm worried that given the last 25 30 years, whether that will actually happen or not, and whether this will become simply protectionist measures aimed at looking good but not doing as much internally. Um, and I would say a lot of criticisms now of the, um, the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, which has been heralded by many activists as being a path-breaking effort, has, been led, has led other countries, uh, including the EU and, and, and elsewhere, to say, you know what, this is actually a protectionist set of legislation designed to favor U.S. industries over, over other uh, um, uh, companies who are also doing low-carbon strategies. And just a little aside in how these things all link, to get, link together, years ago, there was a Canadian, uh, uh, sorry, a Chinese uh, solar panel company named Yingli uh, that went out of business after the United States slapped anti-dumping duties on these low-cost solar panels. Now, this should have been a happy story for the world, low-cost solar panels, but the U.S. trade law imposed a duty on it to protect U.S. consumer or U.S. producers, which it probably did, but at the expense of the world in creating low-carbon technologies. Therefore, it seems to me 
We need to go much more back to the sophisticated work of policy and governance and designing well across countries and across uh, intervention points that are deemed to be durable uh, and tractable. And I'm concerned that at CHARM, we didn't have much in the policy governance design side that we had in previous years, where you had intellectuals and practitioners coming together and deeply thinking about policy interventions. It seemed instead to be a, a, almost a trade show in some respects of both anti and pro uh, 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 fossil fuels coming together to find a way to either promote their either the low carbon agenda or their high carbon agenda within the context of low goals and uh, private private sector engagement, in which you couldn't distinguish the private sector groups that actually did want to decarbonize from those that actually wanted to not really decarbonize and simply use this as a trade as a trade show. And yet there were very different projects happening simultaneously. And then finally, again, yes, we did see a lot of work on just transitions uh, in this context, but it seemed to me they were largely around private sector engagement in just, just transitions, which I'm not distinct, that's fantastic. But that's not the whole story for how just transitions actually work. And I would say that the next few cops, we've got to bring the government back in. Um, and meaningful policy interventions are a combination, yes, of private sector engagement, but around really, really smart policy mixes that the governments are actually involved in doing. And that brings me back to the positive side again, from Canada to Singapore, we didn't see the government getting back in in significant ways. And my, 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 my point now is, we have to then get the government back in, the private sector engage as, as, as they can um, in important ways, but always keeping our eye on the prize, which to me really is this 1.5 degree objective. Um, I, of course, have um, lots of, lots of follow-up questions. This one's for both of you. Um, ben, you particularly kind of mentioned changes and developments at the at the national level so you know in, in the singapore pavilion um you mentioned particularly um the inflation reduction act in the united states and you know i would i would probably add to that the the midterm results in the united states where you know the the reaction to that to the biggest climate legislation or one of the biggest pieces of climate legislation ever passed in the united states the reaction at the midterms was was kind of completely muted, you know, there wasn't that kind of backlash that we're accustomed to seeing to climate legislation. You know, here in Australia, we've had a federal election that I think could arguably be characterised as a, a climate election. So I suppose my question to both of you is, given what you've both outlined there about COP27 and, and the history of these negotiations, um, Navarro's mentioned that, you know, the continued deadlock, the, that kind of... Um, history of common but differentiated responsibility through to the loss and damages agreement that's kind of continued that history of of deadlock given given that and, and given that you both kind of mentioned developments at the, at the national level do you think that's where we should be looking to to you know to Ben's point about 1.5 and the the extreme urgency of what we're talking about should we be looking at the national level or even below rather than these kind of huge international organizations where as you say you know ben there's a thousand a million cops going on at once i'll throw, I'll throw it to both of you whoever wants to answer first i can start and just say yeah i mean as we know um whatever the policy problem actually is global um politics and policies and governance um rarely do anything by themselves so they're actually places of influence 
Um, and we should probably think about them that way when we get disappointed, which is that they're never going to have the authority that you have, the nation and states have. And they're always around either some kind of financial mechanism to do something or some kind of rough agreement to influence. But governments, for the most part, don't see their their um, sovereign authority uh, to, to a global arena in many cases. So to me, and I think even Paris kind of embraced that. Paris said, look, we're not even going to have binding targets the way Kyoto did on the Annex One countries. We're going to give up that notion that actually we're going to have binding coercive mechanisms to constrain nation states. That's not going to happen. We're going to respect sovereignty. For better or worse, that was a post-Paris world. Um, and yet we do have lots happening at the national level where we do have lots of authority taking place. And the idea that people used to say, well, countries wouldn't act if another country doesn't have also binding you know, uh, requirements isn't actually true. We are seeing all kinds of um, exciting things happen. I know Navros can speak what's happening in India, but again, from China to Canada to now Australia, and now even uh, the United States, we're seeing important things happen that, I mean, the Inflation Reduction Act for all its criticisms you would never have said that would happen two years ago. And it did happen. And it's subsidies, yes, but it's around low carbon technologies, um, which is extraordinary. There's a, a shift from coal uh, regions to now actually having engaged in solar power, uh, productive enterprises. There's a shift happening where even in red states, you're getting activity taking place, which is extraordinary. So to me, that's really all exciting stuff. The issue is, is it fast enough? And is it gonna happen quickly enough? to make a difference. And I would say from Australia to Canada to the United States, they can't forget that despite all this activity, they're per capita still some of the highest emitters and historically will always be for years. So they can't lose sight of the fact that they look very good now, uh, relatively on doing innovative stuff, but responsibly they look terrible still. And they must take that, that, that responsibility with them uh, and do the deep cuts that Navarro's talked about. And I'm worried that they're not going to. They're going to look at China, they're going to look somewhere else, and they're going to actually put off responsibilities. And from, from Gore to Obama to Biden, they do that. They kind of blame China in their rhetoric. But I would just say, keep on looking inward, you guys. You have the responsibility. Keep on doing it. Don't stop. Don't stop now. Uh, yeah, thank you. Maybe I can I can come in uh, briefly. I, I'm really, really glad you raised this question, uh, Emma, and phrased it uh, as you did. You know, we we started out this conversation from the vantage point of Sharm al-Sheikh because it's just happened. But I actually think most of our conversations need to uh, start and end with the vantage point of national uh, economies and national political economies. Um, I think, you know, we want to pick up uh, and build on what Ben said, Paris was, for better or for worse, a kind of a turn that said, we're going to take a bet here. We're going to say, let countries tell us what they can manage at home in a way that respects their sovereignty. And hopefully, when they go back home and try and do that, they'll find that it's cheaper than they thought or easier than it's thought, or ideally both. And they'll come back five years later and have a heightened pledge, a raised pledge. So nobody expected the first round of pledges would get us where we had to go, but that through a learning by doing process and a shifting of politics process, and I think the Inflation Reduction Act is a great example of that, right? Through the sort of skin of their teeth, the US Congress managed to get this act through, but you can make a reasonable bet that the spending of all this money is going to actually empower renewable energy interests 
and relatively distant power fossil fuel interests so that the next such legislation might become just a tad easier. And that's the cycle. It's a cycle of action, but it's also a cycle of political shifts that you want to put in place in country after country. And we see that in India. So what's interesting, uh, you know, I talked about this deadlock, common but differentiated responsibility and so on and so forth. And what that means is that India and China and the many of the group of 77 uh, and the other uh, 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 countries, Egypt, Philippines, et cetera, that India is often allied with, will not put more ambitious pledges on the table because they want to hedge against the risk that they're developing will be compromised. But it may not stop them from experimenting at home, right? So in India, we will we normally approach these pledges as a floor to our action, not as a ceiling. What do we think we can comfortably exceed? Right? So I'll give you one example. India pledged that we will reach 50% non-fossil fuel capacity in our electricity system by 2050. So non-fossil fuel is obviously renewables, but also hydro and nuclear and so on. 50% non-fossil fuel capacity. Right? That doesn't mean 50% of the electricity will be non-fossil. It's just that the capacity will. And typically, coal plants have a much higher capacity factor, so they run for longer because coal can be turned on and off. Uh, the sun doesn't always shine. The solar only runs for a certain portion of the day. Domestically, what we have said is, and this is part of something coming out of one of our laws, that we will reach 43% of our electricity generation from renewables, not even fossil fuels, renewables, by 2030. That's a much more ambitious number than the 50% capacity number. So we are pushing our domestic system. We're just not willing to lay it all on the line internationally, right? So, so you have this dynamic where you do have this learning by doing happening. You do see the political shifts happening. Uh, uh, the Indian government is lining up behind in its budget statements, lots of money for uh, in, in what is called production-linked incentives structures for storage electric vehicles, uh, solar uh, panels, and so on, right? So we see kind of a job creation, green growth story. We're putting money to try and make that happen. But again, in case it doesn't work, we want to be able to turn on the coal plants because otherwise you have a country where the average Indian uses a tenth the electricity of the average American actually having to go down in energy needs. So that's a bargain we're not willing to make. But we're willing to roll the dice and try and accelerate progress. And that's not such a bad story. Where the story falters a little bit, I think, and this is where you know the tension comes in, is in the 1.5 degrees. I feel like if we were still in a two-degree world, the Paris machinery, a learning by doing machinery, was designed for a two-degree world. It was designed to give countries time to go home and come back. In a 1.5 world, you don't have time to go home and come back. You don't have you don't have time to learn by doing. So we have a, an international regime machinery that is incompatible with the nature of the target. That's what really worries me. But the, the, the sort of general story, and we have, don't have time here to get into the subnational level, but it's also the subnational level, the general story that the action is over there, I think is absolutely right. Uh, oh, sorry, Emma, I was gonna say, can I jump in here and add one more uh, intervention point? Because I really agree with and appreciate what Navarro's just said. To me, there's a, a broader conceptual uh, point here, which is um, uh, regarding two words, uh, weather and how. So um, to me, what's happened since Paris is we've dropped the 
how to get to 1.5. We added the whether we can get to 1.5 depends on comma. And then we have the what it depends upon. And now it just gave us one depending upon. Um, so on the north though, the depending upon is can we get the finance right? Can we get the technology right? So Mark Carney, you know, says he's found 130 trillion in private finance to help um, whether we can, and he says whether the climate crisis can be addressed depends upon finding this 130 trillion and leveraging it and getting into the system. Um, but what if he said um, the weather is the problem, it should be the how. All of a sudden then we change our policy tools uh, in some ways, we bring more regulatory space in to require companies to invest this way, not hope they will. Um, you could see doing a lot more on the regulation side that would still leverage finance, but it wouldn't be around the, the weather, but simply the how. And my worry is that the word experimentation, going back, trying again, brings the weather in, uh, not the how. And this last climate cop, I think, was all around the weather. Uh, it means finding the finance case, finding the business case, finding the technological solution would give us um, the answers to whether we can address the 1.5. But if we reverse that and said, no, it's how we get there, we could bring a lot more regulatory policy mixes into the story that would still leverage innovation and still leverage finance, but in a way that wouldn't make it conditional upon that. And that's not just simply an abstract point. Carney himself has now said he can't meet the 130. Uh, com companies are backing out of their pledge already. And you know, go back 15 years, my first uh, climate cop meeting in Bali, um, the Big focus was on financing for nature, but what's now called nature-based climate solutions. Back then, the World Bank said that the agreement on re reduced emissions from deforestation and degradation, the agreement called Red Plus, um, was a game changer that, quote, will reduce deforestation. Okay, the World Bank said this, and they call it transformative. Um, uh, and that didn't happen. And 15 years later, Mark Carney is using the exact same words the World Bank used 15 years ago. So my concern is we got to move from our rhetorical justification for these examples, experiments to drop the weather and focus on the how. Uh, and to me, that's a very different story that I don't think was really the forefront um, at Charm. And I don't think it's the forefront of actually um, a lot of our domestic policy initiatives yet. It wouldn't be hard to do that. I suppose kind of building on on what you were just saying ben and this this question of the how and navrosa's point about the um i suppose the political messaging and the political positioning that that's happening constantly not not just at um the cop meetings um and also on a, on a point navrosa made earlier about the messaging around mitigation and kind of mitigation being the path i'm wondering if you could both um in that context, I suppose, speak a little bit about the the tension or the relationship between mitigation and adaptation and 1.5 and whether, you know, at COP27 and the other COPs you've attended, there's a recognition of the, I suppose, the compounding crisis of, of mitigation without adaptation. Uh, I'm, not really, I'm happy to yield to you for this part and I can go second. Okay. All right. I'll... I'll um... Uh, uh, thank you. I, I have to confess that uh, most of my work has been on the, uh, including with the IPCC and so on, has been on the mitigation side. But I, I do think we are seeing um, finally adaptation being given its 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 due in a sense. And the argument has always been that the most cost effective thing uh, to do is to mitigate, then 
is to adapt and least is is actually loss and damage uh least cost effective because you're paying for some for, for damages after the fact but i think that we're in a world where we know that all three of these terrains are uh, are now sort of we're, we're, we're going to occupy all three of these of these of these scapes um so at Sharm el sheikh the you don't hear a lot about it because the decision on adaptation which is to negotiate a global goal on adaptation is due to come out next year so uh so there was background stuff going on and you will it'll be one of the headlines uh next time around that's just sort of a factual how do you track this multi-ring circus uh sort of point my understanding of what went on here is and it's it's quite interesting one of the tensions is is adaptation just doing development better or is it actually something concretely different um if it's something different is it doing disaster uh, preparedness better? Or again, is it something beyond that? And I think that the, 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 one of the challenges with adaptation is the boundaries are, 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 so, are so blurred. So for example, in a country like India, thinking about your crop choice, uh, can you move to coarse grains that are both less vulnerable to water stress uh, have less peaky yield profile so that you don't suddenly fall off a cliff and actually give you better nutrition uh, and essential minerals. You know, that is an adaptation measure. It's also a really good development uh, 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 measure. So we don't want to necessarily draw arbitrary lines around adaptation, but from a developing country point of view, if you see adaptation is just doing development better, then again, you're losing the ability to both ask for support. You're sort of taking the responsibility back on yourself. You're losing the ability to ask for support and there are certain aspects of adaptation that are truly global. So for example, the Secretary General, I think it was uh, said, why don't we think about you know, a goal, a sub-goal that says X percentage of the global population is covered by early warning systems for natural disasters. Right? That's actually a good kind of global goal to have that's measurable and it's something that, that the North can contribute towards. So the global goal on adaptation language is trying to find a set of things like that that everybody can coalesce around um, uh, uh, and, and try and make happen, even while there are conversations going on about sort of, you know, tweaking, modifying, changing your patterns of, of development. So, for example, how do you manage your water systems in a world where where uh, uh, where uh, water flows are likely to become more unpredictable and, and perhaps violent. So those are the kinds of debates going on in, in adaptation. But I think there is a recognition that adaptation needs to be part of the global conversation as well, not just the national conversation, uh, obviously part of both. And that's actually a change uh, over the last few years. Yeah, thanks. So jump in here. I mean, I think this has been the conversation in the very beginning. With, and the big worry has been does a focus on, on adaptation um, undermine or minimize um, mitigation? Uh, and this has been a big debate back and forth. Some say no, they're both requiring simultaneous pathways. But others say, yeah, but the more we think about adaptation, the more we empower those that don't want to meet 1.5 and can simply work on building walls uh, uh, and infrastructure and so on. Um, and, and so I think there's a real uh, legitimate fear um, that focusing on adaptation, by bringing that into the conversation and now loss and damage, even at a lower level, um, is correlating with not coming close to the 1.5 degree objectives. There's a correlation anyway, 
uh, with these conversations. It seems easier to address adaptation and even loss and damage in some way. Um, but we do know, and whether you're looking at this from an economics perspective and you're arguing that this is bad for the economy, or whether you're looking at this from an environmental perspective and saying it doesn't matter, this is the globe, this is our planet, economics shouldn't be the main concern. Um, we do know that in the long run, um, it doesn't matter. You end up in the same uh, story, keeping the 1.5, um, will in the long run be better for economic development and it will be way better for um, the, um, the planet. And yet in the short term, those logics aren't always there. And in the short term, we're getting more emphasis on adaptation at the expense of mitigation. But of course, if you mitigate more now, your costs of adaptation go way down. So it's ironic that in the long run, all these go in the same direction. We should be focusing way more on, on mitigation than we are. Doesn't mean less than adaptation, but way more on mitigation to, under to reduce the cost of adaptation. It's nonsensical in the long run, whether you're an economist or whether you're an environmentalist, it's the same answer. So certainly my worry is that um, where things are going now, the short term makes for easier conversations on, on adaptation or even loss and damage, but at the expense of these, these broader 1.5 degree goals. The fact that we're having jockeying around responsibility these days, the fact that we're having punitive taxes on countries with low carbon emissions, like Narvos has mentioned, um, on the on the mitigation side of the of the ledger, to me is um is concerning. That's that's a backslide, and we're making progress on loss and damage in some way, which of course is important, but nothing compared to um, the first order and the reason why we have the climate conference in the first place, how to mitigate. So I do see that that worrying and that tension. Um, and I, you know, there's no easy answer because we we live in the short term, right? But I think more governments now are recognizing how do we plan for the long term um, is where we have to redouble our efforts as both scholars and as practitioners and as members of our of our planet. Thank you both. Um, you you've both, um, and I think it kind of in your answers to the, to that question as well. You've both mentioned and and um, focused quite a bit on the, I suppose, the technical nature of um, these agreements, the the kind of granular detail that that they go into questions, um, often very opaque questions of of carbon markets and and that kind of um, financing or the need for like a, a green Wall Street, which we've been traded to here in Australia. I'm wondering what. What sense, if any, you know, given the fact that you were both there in person, what sense is, if any, there is that this COP is part of a much bigger agenda, that the Paris Agreement is, you know, one of the targets of the, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which is, you know, described by the United Nations itself as a global agenda for transformation. Is there a sense on the ground that that this is what it's about or is is that kind of deliberately buried, I suppose, in this in this focus on the technical. Yeah, I think uh, again, this technical versus political conversation uh, are these two levels. Um, and I would say that for me, um, looking back at the other cops that I attended, we really were at the technical side of the story. You know, how do we leverage finance? Uh, how do we engage in uh, you know the latest technologies, including, for example advancing uh, hydrogen uh, as a possible solution. How do we build better batteries? All these things are really important and technical in nature, but they sometimes sidestep the broader political stories. Um, it's telling that um, at the Bali COP, there was this uh, a side event called 
Forest Day, in which there were as many social scientists as there were technical people and, and, and sort of management scholars. Um, there must have been about 800 people there looking at the the politics and science behind deforestation and climate uh, reductions. And you may, for historical context, remember that up until Bali, most environmental groups did not want tropical forests to be covered under a climate convention. And their concern was that if you treated tropical forests under the climate convention, you'd be treating them as carbon sources of carbon sinks and emissions when forests are much more important than that. And they worried, therefore, you'd actually have them subject, subject to their conservation based on financial logics rather than simply conserving for, for nature's own sake. And that's exactly what's happened, right? We're finding, we have to find financial incentives to save forests, but we're saving the carbon in the forest and we hope for broader advantages. But before Bali, the idea was that no, these things matter by themselves. You draw lines on a map and you engage people in them in ways that are um, ecologically sensitive, but you don't worry about whether or not there's a financial case for it per se. You might get some kind of benefit from it indirectly, but that wasn't the main motivator. So the worries of the NGOs have come to fruition, but they're now seen as commodities that you conserve because there's a financial logic for doing so. And to me, that then links to then your question around other things that are happening. So Montreal, um, in a, next month, or this month, actually, we're having the biodiversity COP, right? Which is, um, you know, ironic because the climate COPs have so much biodiversity in them now, it's hard to know whether you had a climate COP or a biodiversity COP. But in the biodiversity COP, they'll be looking at biodiversity first and climate second. And there, they're more targeted towards, well, how do we find the policy mixes to conserve that might have climate benefits? Whereas the climate COPs more on how do we address the climate that might have biodiversity uh, benefits. So back in Bali, the politics were all there. Researchers on them, why do we have this happening? Why do we have then NGOs now agreeing that maybe bringing topics in is okay? And, and we had the developing world really supporting uh, bringing financing in. We had Papua New Guinea leading the charge among rainforest nations, saying it's about time you started giving us resources to conserve our forests, not just have us do this, do this on our own and give up development opportunities. And you had um, policy folks looking at then what are the best mixes for not um, um, only treating forests as carbon sinks, but having a broader approach and landscape and forest day was a huge part of this. And they were nitty gritty social scientists, economists, practitioners trying to get this figured out. Well, uh, forest day became quickly landscape day. And I think in, in Paris, I think there was like thousand, 2000 people. It was huge in Paris. I went to it massive again, nitty gritty. How do we bring the politics into conservation and so on? Well, they had the landscape day in charm and it was, uh, like a ghost town, uh, almost very few academics, almost no practitioners, nobody was there. I went there um, and couldn't believe that it was an empty hall of people. And yet this is the place where we tend to get more into the nitty gritty of not just the technical, but the, the political science policy studies part of the story. And that wasn't uh, the place for charm. So um, I think that's a mistake. I think we have to have the politics and policy studies in there. We've got to think about the interactions that um, take place when you only think about this as a technical uh, problem when it's not, it's also a political problem. And how do we link it to systematically to me will make the difference about whether or not all these initiatives now from Singapore to Canada, the United States to the EU are gonna just reinforce a protectionist 
culture that kind of shifts the blame to one that actually thinks about bringing politics and governance in that moves us towards targeting ourselves towards the problems we're seeking to, to address, not simply reinforce the, the business case uh, for doing so. As important as that is, that's got to be not done the way that adds the weather. It's got to be the how, given the cliff we're all, uh, we're all facing. So that's a long way of saying, yeah, let's bring the politics back in and let's bring politics into policy design. And then we can start to actually, you know, uh, as they call the word now is bend the curve towards um, meaningful reductions versus blame, uh, blame avoidance. Um, yeah, I think it's a it's a the the, the SDG question and the linkage is a is, is a really interesting one. Um, and and Ben is very nicely taking you through sort of the 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 land use and forest uh, sort of dimension of that, which is one of the strands, as he said, that's sort of running through at least from Bali. Um, but I, I sort of want to uh, step back and and reflect on uh, uh, Emma's question, which which I have to say. Um, I haven't done in that in that way. The reason, uh, so the short answer is, I didn't get a sense that the climate conversation was suffused with the SDG agenda at Sham. Um, it was a sort of a parallel. There's a parallel conversation going on, but the point of intersection is this assertion that climate mitigation, as well as climate adaptation, as well as loss and damage could affect development and development life chances, which are meant to be encapsulated in that framework of the SDGs. Um, uh, you know, there were people walking around with SDG pins, it must be said, but I'm not sure that 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 had penetrated, you know, beyond it was it was a nice metaphor for the veneer. Um, the the so so there's two ways of looking at this intersection. In this kind of zero sum game, and I think that there's a little bit of an elephant in the room around 1.5. You know, I I think Ben is uh, those climate progressives hold very staunchly to 1.5. My view is that 1.5 has ended up becoming something that has become fetishized a little bit and might, as a language, might even be getting in the way of of moving faster um, because it's become a, a point of, of conflict. And this is a slightly controversial thing to say, so I'll go there tentatively. But, um, but the, 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 where I'm going with this and linking it back to SDGs, is that when you're in that kind of climate carbon-denominated world, then the language becomes one of, there's a finite amount of carbon. We heard this coming out of the IPCC 1.5 report, you know, 12 years to the budget will last us 12 years or 15 years or whatever the number is, which is actually a slight misrepresentation of what the IPCC said, but it's finite and it's on the order of a small number of decades. Then it becomes zero sum. Your carbon, my carbon, who gets to emit, et cetera, et cetera, right? Which is not a helpful framing if you're looking at it from an SDG point of view. Because actually, a lot of what you want to do to achieve the SDGs, you also want to do from a climate point of view. So developing countries that are growing rapidly want to move in the direction of urbanization that privileges walking, biking, and public transport. That will actually be help you on your SDGs. It will help you on climate. It need not be zero sum, but we've taken our eye off that synergy set of ways of thinking about things because we're so worried about the zero sum nature that the 1.5 conversation uh, brings us to. So it's in that sense that the 1.5 conversation actually closes down some channels and makes it all about ambition denominated as carbon, as opposed to choices about development that also bring mitigation. 
they're two slightly different framings. And the latter framing is one where the SDGs could be brought to the conversation. The former framing is one where the SDGs are excluded and it becomes oppositional. Um, and maybe I can come in here again. Um, I think this is a really important conversation that I've been, as Emma knows, working on on a broader level. And I've, I've got a slightly different take uh, than Navros. So he's arguing that the 1.5 has caused um, lack of action. Um, whereas I'm arguing the opposite. The 1.5 was never taken seriously uh, because other SDGs were brought up instead, economic development and so on, such that um, it never got the attention it needed. So we're actually um, generating two very different causal hypotheses in our, in our, in our thinking. Um, and I think it's worth interrogating those further. Um, I did review the IPCC's report on 2019, and they, they argue that there are far more synergies than there are um, trade-offs. Or what in my lab we call the whack-a-mole effects, where there's a game where you whack a mole and the mole appears in a different hole. You whack that mole, the mole appears in another hole. You whack that mole. So whack-a-mole game always has moles appearing. You solve one problem, create another problem. So um, the IPCC report comes down on you can win the whack-a-mole game, but the evidence to me is not uh, consistent with that metaphor. So, for example, we know that whenever you um, change a forest in the tropics, when you change it to another use, we know species become extinct because many species live within one hectare, a lot of beetles populations. So there are no synergies between these beetle species that become extinct when you convert a forest to another use, which does uh, alleviate poverty and does allow um, development to occur. And yet nobody's having this conversation um, anywhere that I can see in the climate conferences. Nobody's saying, what about the beetles we know we'll, we'll lose? So even the most development agenda does call for land use change. And I have no problem intellectually with that or even objectively with that. My challenge is nobody's having a conversation that says we know from the science that we will actually destroy species when we do that. In fact, when people are advocating for land use approaches often say I'm going, I'm going in a science-based approach to advocate for land use change. So we're now, um, scientists tell us, um, rendering endangered 1 million species. This is um, for the biodiversity Convention reports. So 1 million species, this is a UN report, means that uh, land use change is part of that conversation. So we have to be saying then, I think honestly, what do we want in, in a world in the next 10 years when we continue land use change? It does mean we're going to have further species become extinct under any plan, even the 1.5 degree plans. So why aren't we saying, well, we think the number should be 700,000 saved or 300,000 lost? Why aren't we having those conversations? I argue because IPCC and other reports say there are synergies, there are much more synergies across these different uh, impacts, and there actually are not when it comes to some of the most important questions on the environment placing our, facing our planet. There are simply moles. So where are the moles? How many moles do you want and where do you want them? To me, those conversations are being had intellectually or even practically. And again, I have no problem uh, as, as a scholar saying the world's going to agree that we're going to save 700,000 of the million species. But that conversation isn't being had and we're just saying they're nature-based climate solutions when these solutions mean species become extinct, just not as many as would have become extinct otherwise. So where's the equivalent of the 1.5 in the species extinction uh, side? I don't know. Furthermore, I don't see it on the equity side either. I've done a review of equity literature, and it's all over the place in so many directions, whether it be responsibility for the 1.5, whether it be outside and adaptation. Equity can mean so many things. I have, there's no 1.5 equivalent. And so we're not having those conversations. We're saying abstractly there are more synergies. Um, 
but I don't buy it, actually. Um, there are actually a lot more moles than we think there are. Now, yes, there are actually in some cases, I accept, synergies. There definitely are. Um, but we should be much clearer as to what those actually are and what those actually are not. Um, so why should the South have to stop developing because the North emitted um, carbon? Absolutely. Great point. That's an equity issue. That's a development issue. By all means, absolutely. There's, the North has nothing to say about that that has any uh, currency. But that is going to mean species loss. Now, if the North wants to then come in and finance some more to change that, or if the South wants to in its own just protect because they want to protect, fine. But what we're saying now is whether you can address biodiversity and these species is dependent upon a financial case. Because we backed ourselves into this kind of whether, not how. Um, so ironically, we're saying there are synergies, but then we're also saying whether, not how. But on the finance side of trading forces uh, as markets, we will have trade-offs when it comes to species extinctions. And we can't get around this. My point is, let's have the conversation and then work backwards from the problems we want to solve. And my worry is that the synergies uh, metaphors have undermined that conversation, therefore undermined um, more regulatory approaches and promoted the financialization of our, of our forests, which again, as part of the mix, could be quite fine. But if we're backing into then whether we conserve 600,000 or 200,000 species based on our financial mechanisms is an odd way to, I think, think about how many species it is we want to actually conserve as the South develops and as the North um, pushes off responsibilities to the South. That's a kind of provocative point, but I, you know, I'm just trying to give other perspective about you know, actual on the ground impacts. And I think you'd probably share because they're different questions, development versus biodiversity, but they do interrelate often in negative, negative ways. I, I would love to continue this, but I'm not sure if Emma wants us to, given that, you know, we live down the road from each other, Ben, we could probably continue <laughs> this, but, but, but if you, I, I, up to you, Emma. Um, no, 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 brother, I would like to give you the opportunity to respond, but I might just flag for the audience that after you have responded, I'll open it up to questions just sure. to give people time to think. So, so go for it, please. I'll try and be really, 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 really quick. I actually <laughs> think that, that a lot of, a lot of convergence uh, here, um, and I completely agree with Ben that there's, that there's both, between the mitigation and the SDG agenda and the biodiversity agenda, it's they don't all move in the same direction. It's a complex world. You know, it's a biophysical world with you know the, the ecology of this is complex. So sometimes there are synergies and sometimes there are trade-offs. The question is, is that the best way to look at it? Explicitly looking for synergies and building on them, and explicitly watching for trade-offs and avoiding them. I actually think that's a really good way of framing uh, the challenge. Where I'm a bit concerned with the 1.5 stuff is that because it is the language of a climate emergency, um, it then for, it then elevates the mitigation objective above other ones. It says, sorry, we don't have time, including to think about energy for education, you know, for kids to, to read and have access to healthcare. We don't have time for biodiversity. We have to, and that's where the, 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 the forest discussion that you've been so involved in, Ben, right? You valorize the carbon content of, of forests over the other things that forests, many other things that forests give. So the, the, my, my worry is sometimes the 1.5 conversation can close down the space for this more rich multi-objective synergy and trade-off uh, way of looking at things. Now, not to say that 1.5 isn't productive, and this takes us back to the conversation we are having earlier about different national contexts. In Scandinavia, in the UK, the 1.5 language has been enormously productive in terms of pushing the politics. 
right? It has mobilized the youth. It's got the UK Climate Change Committee uh, formation, the Climate Change Act, climate change legislation across Europe. It's been really productive. I would argue that in the developing world, it has potentially been less productive because it's basically said, sorry, you don't have time to develop anymore. It's a climate emergency. At least that's how it's been interpreted as a threat. So we're in this weird context where we have these global processes, but the narratives that work in one country may actually not work so well in another country. And I guess I'm just gently urging to open themselves to the possibility that the 1.5 climate emergency narrative, when it's read as a you don't have time to develop narrative, can be counterproductive in certain national political economies. So that's where I'm going with the with the 1.5 stuff. But I think the really broad space for agreement is the synergy trade-off. They're both present. Let's look across objectives and look, you know, on a case-by-case basis for for both of those things, and not be blind to to. to uh, it's not a one-sided story. You know, one quick thing out of this conversation, I know we went to some Q and A. Is um, I wonder if one way out of this out of this sort of friendly debate is um, not worrying about synergies and trade-offs at all. And just saying, what are the things we need to have achieved in the ground? What are they? 1.5 is one. Access to quality education is another. Those two both have to happen. It doesn't matter whether there's synergies or other things or not. Access to um, uh, 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 health care and or education, both of those ought to be um, fundamental regardless of anything else. Well, I can imagine we could agree with let's say top 10 on the ground objectives, largely focused in the South, that would be not negotiable, regardless of synergies and trade-offs. Like why even go to those debates and just say we must achieve them? But I think we're adding the weather to all of those in our current policy tools, and they should be looking at the how instead. And those top 10, the ones that Navarro's mentioned, the ones that I talk about, forest climate equity issues, those can be achieved. But not all SDGs can be achieved simultaneously. That's just not possible. And my worry is the SDG process has implied we can achieve them all. They're all achievable. We just got to find synergies. And I'd rather I'd rather say, what do you prioritize as our top 10 objectives and meet those regardless of synergies? And there could be both positives and negatives and others, but just achieve those first, to me, would be a way out of this, uh, this these metaphorical debates that I agree with can push in both positive but also negative directions if we're not careful. I am kind of loath to draw a line under this discussion, but I, I'm conscious that we've got sort of 10 minutes left um, and I haven't left much time for audience Q&A. So I will open the floor um, to the audience. If you'd like to ask questions, you're welcome to, to pop them in the chat or if you feel comfortable um, to turn your mic on and introduce yourself. Um, I, I'm looking here at all of the other questions that I've written down. So I've got some, got some already, but I will, I'll, I will welcome our, our audience to ask any questions if they would like to. Robbie, please. Just to break the ice. Good evening. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Uh, just again, uh, just a good point to end on where Ben Ben talked about the need to, for education. Uh, I, I've just come back from the World Assembly of the Global Campaign for Education, the biggest civil society organization, and we put up a we put up an amendment to the strategic plan that they developed that talks about there should be climate change education within all education programs. And we tried to explain it cannot be just climate change education. It needs to be climate justice education. And to be able to defend that, we we said, look, 
in, in, I think the person from Egypt just said, look, you know, with this loss and damage, the, the idea, there, therefore, that this was in the conversation, the whole concept of justice, not just the technical aspect. Of, you know, we, basically, we were able to explain briefly using the debate in COP recently that this is not a technical kind of climate change education we need. The concept of justice became very, and I was surprised that initially there was some like, but why justice for climate change? And I, I thought this was a civil society gathering already. But still, there were some like, mm? but when we said that this was something in COP recently and the loss and damage, and yet it was not. So I think there, there's that, one realizes that even if we think Speaking to the converted is not necessarily also, you know, uh, going to happen very smoothly. But I think so. So that's one of the things I think that I, I just wanted to share in terms of how the recent debates are actually helping to push forward, even within civil society. One of the things I'd be interested in, and maybe there's no time. And I've always thought about yes. So now there's loss and damage, mitigation, adaptation. Have we stopped talking of transformation, or is transformation happening within? Because it feels like you know, mitigation and adaptation. Mitigation is that let's try to reduce adaptation. Let's try to, you know, live within the limits and all that. And then loss and damage, let's pay for that. How do we therefore keep that, That you know, what, what can we still transform or have we given up on transformation? I'm happy to take a crack at that first. Um, yeah, so again, um, this relates both to our previous conversation uh, and, and I think nicely what we're working on. But for me, these words, um, synergies, um, transformations, uh, just transitions, they're all useful, but they're very abstract. Um, and 1.5 isn't, that's very clear. So I think we need more work on like what are the equivalent, um, very clear objectives that we'd be talking about on the ground. So I mentioned access to, let's say, let's say K through 12 education is an objective. You could measure that in every country and say, okay, that's an SDG, or that's actually an, that's an sustainable development objective. It's measurable that the world's going to agree has to happen no matter what, not a whether, a how. Um, that could be one. It's very clear. So the, the transformation would be if we achieve that, or it might be access to universal health care. Everybody can be, go see a doctor and, and have health care. Very clear, measurable objective. Um, the equivalent of 1.5 um, on biodiversity, maybe we say it's one third land protected uh, from extractive interests. I don't know, that's again, very clear, but we don't have those. So we say transformation, we talk about now um, the degrowth movement. And my worry is these are gonna get us back into these abstract conversations that are hard to even parse out. Again, the equity debates are, done a review of this recently, are all over the place. It's just mind boggling, right? There's no consensus of what it actually means. And we have no consensus of what it means to be have transformation. So I would say, let's not drop transformation per se, we should transform what we want to, but let's be much clearer about what are the things we prioritize as must things that must occur on the ground um, that would make people and our nature better off versus the how versus the weather. And to me, that means much, many more 1.5s in other spaces, not fewer. And that's my, that's, that's my, um, my main concern around these um, SDG conversations. I've, I've identified four different transformation projects in my own work among SDG scholars, four, not one, and they all are actually at odds with each other. They don't, there are no synergies. They're actually at odds with each other, and they're very different. They're all meaningful, um, but they're different. And so by just saying we need a transformation without saying what kind of transformation, I think undermines all of our, 
all of our causes and all the things we work on trying to achieve. Uh, thanks. So just quickly uh, add to that. Uh, thanks for your question, uh, 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 Roberto. I just maybe give you a quick anecdote um, going all the way back to 1992, <laughs> so 30 years ago. Uh, so at the Rio, uh, um, uh, the big Rio climate uh, environment, UNSAID as it was called, the Earth Summit, um, there was the negotiation going on and then there was a parallel NGO negotiation going on. There was a mock NGO climate treaty that this other colleague uh, uh, who I recently bumped into after many years and I were supposed to be kind of convening and chairing. What was really amusing about this is we couldn't come to agreement at all. We were just mirroring all the disagreements that that were going on in the formal uh, uh, process, you know. So we're sort of quite rooted in some of these uh, in some of these uh, national conversations. So it's sort of uh, you know amusing in a not very funny way. Mm -hmm. I have to say, hear your experience, uh, you know, in a sense mirror mirror that. It's just it's just mm -hmm. an it's just an echo rather than anything very instructive uh, to add to that. On on transition and transformation, uh, uh, so transition has become using the language of just transition has become a very big thing uh, of late. Um, and the it was thus, there was this bounced around in the IPCC with the eventual consensus being that transition is the process and transformation is kind of the the you know where you want to end up uh, in terms of use of that language. Now I think Ben is right that that what counts as a transition is a very murky thing. But I think where we have placed our chips collectively and I think it's in, in this sense is not unproductive, is to say, given that we are in a Paris world of nationally determined contributions, and given that we've chosen to privilege sovereignty, a transition is whatever a country says it is, right? And you can have multiple transitions. So you go away and figure out what works for you as a country, and then the global process is to find ways of enabling and supporting that with, that, that's, kind of the, the, that's kind of the landing spot which means that one country's transition may look slightly different from another country's transition, um, or, or very different from another uh, country's transition. And I think that that is not so bad because it could actually lead to this sort of productive politics uh, in country after country. And I do believe that to solve this problem or to get closer to solving it, we need country by country productive politics that might look slightly different. And then we have this mechanism of kind of truing up in the Paris Agreement that says, how confident can we be that the sum total of all these national transitions will add up to get us to where we want to be globally? But it's a dicey game because it may not add up. Um, so that's a slightly different vision from the uh, 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 from the sort of benchmarks that we all globally agree to. And and I'm actually you know which Ben put forward. But it sounds to me, Ben, that that's actually an awfully lot like what the SDGs were intended to be. They may not have ended up like that, but they were intended to be sort of mutually agreed to kind of global benchmarks. It, they just proliferated because everybody wanted their their, their everything in there, right? Yeah, yeah. Because that's my point. Um, um, you know, as, as a student of public policy um, who looks at transnational governance, our starting point is governments are always. Um, dealing with multiple problems. Uh, and, their, and their task is to choose which ones to address as most important, that's their task. Governments always prioritize, they have to. SDGs ended up being like, oh, they're just synergies everywhere, everything, everything's gonna be great, no, it's all gonna work in harmonious fashion, and it undermined what public policy does, which is the government level, governments choose what to do. So the fact that you're saying transformations are what governments choose what to do, 
It's actually the reinforcing the policy paradigm, which is that's right, governments do choose what to do. But then if you don't choose what to do and you just say, you know, everything is synergistic, you have a hard time accomplishing and prioritizing what's most important. So I think the prioritization conversations, what matters the most, access to education in the South, access to healthcare in the South, um, 1.5 deep cuts in the North. These are things that we can actually say, we can measure, and, they, and, and they're not abstracted away, and they're not the whether, they're the how. And to me, to me we've, lost sight of the, we've lost sight of the how by bringing in the weather. Uh, and by the way, to me, that means that the business case, the finance case, the technological case, there are great ways to use that to get to the how. Um, fantastic. But half the community, and I think half at Charm, were not about the how, they are about the weather. And so how do we differentiate those communities? Uh, it means bringing policy back in. And maybe that's the way Navarro's and I actually can be quite harmonious in our thinking, which is that ultimately governments do decide what to do. And our job as academics is to help them puzzle through in some way these complexities in, in doing so. And maybe that's a hopeful way to say too, from Singapore to the US, to Canada, to the Philippines, we're now seeing people looking at actual clear objectives, as Robbie's pointed out in the education space, maybe now we're getting to a place now where we can target very clear objectives and, and, and do the heavy work of getting there versus abstracting them away, I think is, is probably an exciting part of what's happening at Charm. Just briefly, Emma, and, and not leave it to the private sector. Pardon me? And not leave it to the private sector, as uh, the observation was, it became such a showcase. I wasn't there, so I, to hear yeah. that, it's just like, <laughs> well, and again, private sector has its role. It innovates, it does great, but not by itself, right? There's a mix involved. Absolutely, yeah. In education, wow. I mean, universities are paid for by governments for the most part, right? So yeah, totally. What's the mix that makes sense to get the effect you want? The fit for purpose objective, to me, is the actual question. And again, a lot of excitement there now, but I think does hold promise, despite the fact that we're probably, and I'm emphasizing probably, a, you know, this hurling towards the cliff concern. Uh, that has to always be never forgotten about too. Well, I'm I'm really sorry to say that um, we are actually out of time. We've gone slightly over time. I'm very pleased we ended with a question about the role of capital, though, because uh, I was going <laughs> to. It was on my list. That's yep. always on my list to talk to Ben about. Um, but I am going to have to have to draw a line on it and and hope that you know we can come together again because I think this has been a really wonderful example of the of the critical. Um, necessity of what the historian Adam II is called calls fine-grained analysis um, when we're engaging these questions. So, so thank you to our um, our wonderful two speakers, and and on behalf of the European Union Centre of Excellence here at RMIT University, and the Institute for Environment and Sustainability at the National University of Singapore. Thank you so much, um, both to our speakers and to our wonderful audience, and and do keep your eye out for for that recording, which will hopefully be available before the end of the year. So thank you again, and and have a lovely evening. Thanks, Emma. Most appreciated. Thank Later. you. Emma. Thanks, Ben. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode of Barely Getting By's Season 4, Up in Flames. The season proper will be coming, I promise you. I know we've been promising it for such a long time. Life and illness and children and work have gotten in the way, but we can say for certain that it will come early next year. So I hope you'll keep your eye out. And in the meantime, that you'll keep safe and have a lovely summer break. Take care.